Thank you, Brother George Wesley. What uh, we do for Christ counts forever. God plays for keeps, as one man once uh, memorably said. Matthew chapter 4, if you'll open your copy of the scripture there, uh, we're in the book of Matthew. I've been for a few weeks now, and we continue there uh, for our ministry of the word uh, to us this Lord's Day morning in the month of January. Matthew chapter 4, 11 verses there I want to read in your hearing, then we'll launch into the exposition of, of this text for our edification Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I'm using a topic or subject for these verses. Jesus and the devil. The devil is God's devil, said Martin Luther. God utilizes the ancient foe to serve his holy and righteous purposes. Scripture, of course, provides ample evidence of this truth that I just stated. We may, for example, consider the patriarch Job, We all know of his travails, his sorrows, his sufferings at the hands of the devil, whom God used to accomplish spiritual ends in the life of Job. We may also summon to mind David's sinful numbering of Israel as well, which was God using that to accomplish purity among the people for a sin that they committed. The temptations of Jesus by the tempter is another example of the devil being God's instrument for God's purposes. The opening two verses of the chapter I just read underscores this reality in the spiritual realm. In fact, those two verses, we may label them the Spirit's leadership. In verse 1, we see the reality here. That Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After his baptism by John in the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit had descended upon him, that is the Lord Jesus, uh, to empower him for his coming public ministry. We see in verse 1, the Holy Spirit initiates an encounter, get that, between Jesus and the devil. 
In fact, in the parallel passage in Mark, the word led is not used by him, but the word impelled is used. Ekbalo is to thrust out. The Holy Spirit was involved profoundly in this. Not only did the Spirit of God lead the Lord Jesus to the place of temptation, but according to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, he also led Jesus around the wilderness. His leadership, in fact, was continuous during that 40-day period when our Lord was being tempted all that time by Satan. It is manifest then, just reading verse 1 here in Matthew chapter 4, that the Lord was in charge. It was God's appointment. The temptations that Jesus experienced were not initiated by the devil. In fact, this is what God is doing. And that has to be borne in mind if we really to understand what's transpiring here. He led him uh, to the wilderness. Notice the words, to be tempted by the devil. Now we need to understand what that word tempted means. First we need to understand that the term tempted or tempt um, in the Greek is a morally neutral term. The word simply means to test or prove. So the word can be used in reference to, to solicitation to evil, or it can denote testing to prove the value or good quality of something. Actually, how the word is used depends on the context in which it is used and the person behind its use. <laughs> That's good to know, isn't it? With God, it is to prove the value or the quality. With Satan, it is to incite to sin. So therein lies the difference between what God intends and what the devil intends. We know that the Holy Spirit did not lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted to sin. That's an impossibility. No way on earth could the Holy Spirit lead Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil so that there would be a potential failure. We know that can't be the case here when we see the word temple. We know it must mean something other than solicitation to evil simply because we have the word of God on this. James 1 verse 13, it says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by evil, by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God can't be tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone to evil. In fact, uh, in James 1.13, there are two words there. It says, he himself. Those words are emphatic. The devil, on the other hand, You'll see in verse 3, he is called the temple. He is not called that without reason. His resolute purpose is to incite people to engage in sin. Now, in fact, because of the grammar of that word in verse 3, it can be translated this way, the one continually tempting. That's what he does, did. In the parallel passage of Luke chapter 4, verse 2, the same accounting of this event, we are told that the devil tempted, the one continually tempting, was tempting Jesus during the entire 40-day 
period. We only think of the three that are listed here in the text here and in, in, in Luke, uh, but actually during that whole time period, the enemy was tempting our Lord. We have the three recorded here for our understanding and edification. Now, you need to understand, in the, in the wilderness is only Jesus and the devil. And of course, the Holy Spirit. So the question is, how do we know uh, these things? How did that come to Jesus told his disciples? Apparently, he related this, this to them as to how this unfolded, this temptation. Now, to reiterate what I've already said about the nature of the word tempter, we can see here in the objectives of God and of the enemy, Satan, let me lay them out. God's objective in the temptations of Jesus was to prove that he indeed is the son of God and that he would indeed follow the path that God the Father laid out for him. Let me add something else to that. There was no way at all that Jesus would fail. The eternal plan of salvation was decreed by God in eternity past. And what God decreed to become the plan of salvation to be implemented could not fail. So it was never a matter, could Jesus actually sin? No, he could not. But it was to prove who he is. He would take all that the devil could throw at him uh, during that 40-day period, and he would be victorious. Indeed, he is the Son of God. And the devil is God's devil. The devil's objective was the diametric opposite, obviously. He wanted to get Jesus to deviate from God's will and thus terminate the redemptive plan of God. Satan wants to stop what God is doing in the salvation of sinners. He wants to stop God's plan because Satan knows his end and he is working relentlessly to stop God. So we have two different objectives, God's and the devil's. But you have to keep in mind, <laughs> the devil is God's devil. In verse 2, Jesus it was physically weakened by fasting. Imagine, no food. No food for 40 days. But Luke uh, 4, verse 1 tells us as well that... Um, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Fill that word there in that passage in Luke means he was um, permeated thoroughly with the Holy Spirit. He was saturated with the Holy Spirit. He was utterly under the influence of the Holy Spirit and he was no doubt strengthened for battle by him. So in these two verses... We understand under the heading, the Spirit's leadership, that this was God's working. Now we come to the first of the temptations, beginning in verse 3. The temptation to doubt God's love. To doubt God's love. Hmm. I, no, no question in my mind that this first of the triad of temptations presented to our Lord, was to cause him to question the Father's love. 
And I, I, I think we come to this conclusion when you look at verse 3 when the tempter uh, says, if you are the son of God. Let's just stop there at that first clause. That is not an expression of doubt about Jesus' true identity. We read that and think, oh, he's raising a question as to, are you really who you think you are? No, um, the clause in the Greek text, beginning with the word if, assumes the reality of divine sonship. The text can rightly be translated, since you are the son of God. The tempter wasn't questioning the sonship of Jesus. He knew who he was. But wanted him to reflect on what it means for him. Commentator D.A. Carson writes, quote, As son of God, surely you can use your rights, prerogatives, and powers to meet your physical needs. Thus the temptation involved Jesus acting independently of the Father's will. And that's significant. That's something the Lord would never do. Throughout his ministry, you know, everything that Jesus did was to do the will of the Father. He said he came to do the will of the Father, John chapter 5, verse 30. The sixth chapter, verse 38. In fact, in the incarnation, the text says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, he emptied himself. That is, he laid aside his divine prerogatives, the independent use of his powers as God. He did that to do the Father's will and to depend on the Holy Spirit's power. That's why the Holy Spirit descended him at the baptism to empower him so that he would depend on the Spirit's power as he functioned in ministry. More insidiously, subtly questioned the Father's love for the Son. You remember, in 3, 17, chapter 3, verse 17 of Matthew, it says this, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. My beloved Son. And the devil, it seems, is saying this. You are the beloved Son. And here you are in a wilderness with wild animals. Here you are alone. And you're hungry. You're the beloved son. Let me tell you, this is an old tactic. And the devil will use it on you. An adverse circumstance in your life. And no doubt Satan will whisper to you, hmm, really, does he love you? <laughs> really? Look at your situation. Look at what you're going through. Let me let you know the reality is this. Our Father is ever and always at work for us for our good. You have to understand that. You have to believe that. Because it's true. So here this assault upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in a weakened state physically. He hasn't had anything to eat. He's alone. He's out there. He has no one else to talk with. And how does he answer the devil who says, Command that these stones become bread. You do something supernatural. Take care of your needs. But our Lord 
did something that any believer could do. He responded with the word of God. You notice he says in verse 4, it is written. It stands written. It's the perfect tense. It was written back then by Moses' pen, and here it is centuries later in Jesus' day. It stands written, and here it is in our day, us living in the 21st century. It stands written. It still applies. It is written. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He quotes from a portion of scripture that is directly given to Israel from the pen of Moses under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says this, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus says man. What is true for mankind is true for Jesus and every other human being. Man does not live by bread alone. Food is not the ultimate reason for our ongoing existence, but the word of God that comes from the mouth of God. Therefore, obedience to the word of God is paramount. Paramount. Jesus said, food is not going to keep me alive. I'm going to remain alive because of the word of God. Obedience to the word of God then is supreme matter for any human being. Jesus shows us the way. Now, this obedience to the word of God being uh, paramount is um, shown in the case with ancient Israel. The Israelites were supernaturally fed by God with manna. Remember that? Forty years. During their, f- their wanderings. But you remember something? They died in the wilderness. You know why they died in the wilderness? Because they disobeyed God at Kadesh Barnea. And that whole generation died. Except for Caleb and Joshua. And those were born after that catastrophe of unbelief. Yes, uh, they died, though they were fed supernaturally. Should have obeyed the word of God. Instead of going into the land of promise, they died in the wilderness. Obedience is paramount. Don't consider, I wonder if he loves me. Yes, he does. No matter what your circumstance Obey him. So we have two things here. Spiritual leadership. He's taking Jesus there. The first test, doubt God's love. Guess what he does? He passes it. Second test. Verses 5 through 7. Test God's faithfulness. To test God's faithfulness. We see here what the devil does. Some means we don't understand how this works. The Bible doesn't disclose this. The devil took him into the holy city. That's Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, The pinnacle probably was a roof extended over Herod's portico. And that place overlooked the Kidron Valley, about 400 feet in elevation above the valley floor. 
So keep that in mind. He takes him there. The devil does. Jesus, how that works, we don't know. But that's what the Bible says, and that's what we understand to be the case. And the devil, <laughs> he thinks he's shrewd. He says, well, you quote scripture, I'll do it too. In verse 6. If you're a son of God, throw yourself down, for it is, it is written. Here he goes. Uh, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The devil quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. That's a, a psalm about God's protection, and God promised his people who are in his will that he would protect them by angelic powers. But of course, the devil, being the devil, he left out part of the verse. He left out, in all your ways, that expression, in your ways of trusting and obeying him. What the devil is doing here in this quotation, he prefaces by saying, if you are the son of God, You trust the word of God. You just told me that. You affirmed it by not turning the stones into bread. You're going to depend on the Lord to take care of you. That's what Satan seems to suggest. And so he is saying to him by quoting this and saying, you're, if you're the son of God, you are the son of God. Well, prove that you are the son of God and prove the truth of God's word by throwing yourself down and let God's, letting God's angels bear you up. Prove it. Now keep in mind, he's in Jerusalem, the holy city, at the temple. To throw himself down, Jesus would do that, Satan's behest. If it, would, it would have been an act of sensationalism. Dramatic proof that he is Messiah. People say, oh, so Satan says, ah, look at that. He threw himself off and the angels came oh it's got to be none other than messiah let's bow down and worship him make him our king really no that won't happen such an act does not engender genuine faith i've uh, long if you've been here a long time you've heard me saying in the past when people talk about we need uh, signs and miracles to win people to Christ, I always said, that's bunk. Why I didn't believe in that is because I know that is not how people come to Christ. They're not saved because they've seen some miracles. We saw that in Jesus' ministry, John chapter 12, verse 37. It says this, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Signs and miracles, even dramatic ones, do not create faith. People are profoundly depraved. There's deep unbelief. You remember, remember the uh, Pharisees, they saw Jesus cast out demons by the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know what they said? He is casting out Beelzebub by Beelzebub. That's nuts. And Jesus begins to systematically destroy their illogical, sinful, foolish thinking. Matthew chapter 12. That's the depth of depravity. It can see the supernatural. It can see all of that and then come away and conclude, ah, oh, the devil's working through him. 
Miracles authenticate God's spokesman so that the hearers may know that the message is from God. The miracles don't convert anybody. The message must be believed. And the message is believed when there is the regenerative act of God, the spirit, in the life of a dead sinner. Apart from regeneration, apart from the new birth, a person can see a multitude of miracles. And his heart of unbelief will remain just that. Won't change you know anything about the New Testament, you can see where the other where leaders in the New Testament, they, they knew the, the miracles. They, they saw them. They rejected Jesus. Even uh, after his resurrection. Furthermore, this temptation. Um, the father had not commanded Jesus to jump from the pinnacle. And that's an important point. He hadn't done that. That, that. That was Satan doing that. You said, you jump. The father hadn't commanded it. To do so would have been to put God the father to the test. Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He was quoting from the book of Exodus. There are, he's referring to that. Remember Israel in the Exodus, in chapter 17, they had arrived at a place where there was no water. And they tested the Lord by saying, quote, is the Lord among us or not? Of course he was with them. He had delivered uh, them from Egyptian bondage at part of the Red Sea. He was providing water and manna for them. But in audacious unbelief, they tested the Lord by asking, is the Lord among us or not? Their test of the Lord demonstrated their unbelief, asking that question. They didn't trust him. Jesus, however, trusted the Father implicitly. That is, without asking any such questions, he knew the Father was with him. He knew uh, the Father would take care of him. He would not put him to the test to prove his faithfulness or his word. Let me apply this. We must not test God's faithfulness to his word either. Now pay attention to this. By manufacturing situations in which we try to force him to act in certain ways. This is not faith. This is presumption. Listen to this. Commentator Craig Blomberg writes, quote, Do not expose yourself to physical harm and call it faith. That is testing God. Blomberg wrote that years ago. There was no pandemic, by the way. That's what people do, exposing themselves to harm. Is like, oh, God, save me. That's not faith. That's presumption. Jesus wouldn't do it. Do not demand a response from God that he did not command. If God hasn't commanded it, 
if there are no principles in Scripture that encourages me to do it, I'll put it like this in a very erudite way. I ain't doing it. Don't put him to the test. Now, there's another lesson we can learn here from this temptation. We glean a sound principle of Bible study. The Westminster divines, um, those men who spent five years developing um, theology from the Scripture, and part of it is how to interpret Scripture, they said Scripture must interpret Scripture. The interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And they're right. What better interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture? The Scripture knows what it means by what it says. Because the Scripture ultimately comes from a single author. Therefore, God knows what he meant when he said what he did in, say, Jeremiah. And there's a text in, say, Matthew. He knows what he means. So compare the scriptures and let scripture interpret scripture. When there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. You say, why do you say that? That's why Jesus said in verse 7, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan used Psalm 91 to try to uh, get Jesus to throw himself off. And Jesus resorted, retorted by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You want to know how to understand Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12? Jesus said, this is how you do it. Quoting that text. So therefore, I know I'm not throwing myself off some building. Because I'm not to put the Lord or God to the test. Spirit's leadership. Doubt God's love. Test God's faithfulness. The next thing. Um, Satan didn't want Jesus to give uh, exclusive worship to God. This has been the devil's big desire all along. Look at it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. First of all, we need to understand uh, this final temptation. He, he did, in fact, possess all the kingdoms of the world. It was his to offer all the, the, all the kingdoms and all the glory, the glory, the wealth, the power, and all of that. He was saying to Jesus, here, I'll, I'll give this to you. Verse 9. If you fall down and worship me. Let me tell you something. That has been the devil's aim from the get-go. That's why he fell. He wanted to be worshipped. The five I wills in Isaiah 14. He wanted to receive the worship of the angelic host. And by the way, uh, in the end times, he's going to have a man, uh, the Antichrist, and he and him, they will be worshipped by sinners. That's Satan's desire. That's his, his lust. 
said, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you will worship me. Now, interestingly here, uh, in this particular uh, temptation, the devil didn't say, if you are the son of God. But that reality was certainly in the background since Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. The father there promises his son precisely these kingdoms. Satan says, I'll give you these kingdoms now. You won't have to suffer and go to the cross. You can rule now. All you need to do is worship me. May I say this is unbelievable. This is unthinkable. A creature in his pride um, asking the creator to worship. Do understand that it was Jesus Christ who created Lucifer who became the devil. Further, do understand that Christ would obtain the kingdoms of the world. Not the devil's way, the God's way. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it tells us this. Now, here's something I think is really profound. It's wonderful. It's just, it is great. Jesus says in verse 10, Go, Satan. Jesus' sovereign authority over Satan is revealed in the imperative, go. As if Jesus said, okay, uh, enough of this, get out. Go. You're done. Jesus ends the time of temptation. And then he quotes, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13, the first part of it, the second part, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. Worship is to be given only to the Lord your God. That includes the devil. That includes all created intelligences. Angels and men are to engage in worship of the triune God. Satan had to leave. It was proven. The devil left him, verse 11. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Um, in response to the fathers who cared for the Savior, the Lord, he sent his angels and ministered him, and probably they provided food. And probably they worshipped him. <laughs> so we see who he is. It's demonstrated for all to see. The king... Jesus Christ is the king. He has a kingdom and he's sovereign. He rules. It's proven here by this encounter with the devil. In our struggle with Satan and his demons, we cannot command them to leave as Jesus did. We can't say to him, be gone. We're not authorized to do that in scripture. No place do you find us doing that. But we can resist the devil and he will flee from us, James 4, 7. That's how you get him to leave. Just simply obey God. 
Jesus used scripture in refusing the devil's uh, solicitations to, to evil. He was specific in his utilization of the word of God to defeat Satan's attacks. We must have a growing knowledge of scripture, develop a knowledge of scripture beyond the superficial level so that we can apply the right text to the temptation. Very important. You notice the ease with, the, with, with Jesus used the word of God to deal with the temptations presented to him by Satan. And that's how we need to handle it. We have a high priest who is familiar with our temptations. He knows. You could say, well, he, he doesn't know what I'm going through. Yes, he does. In fact, he knows it better than you. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I said he knows it better than you and I do. I'm tell you why. We don't know the full force of sin. You know why? Because we capitulate too quickly. Jesus never sinned. He knows the full onslaught of temptation. So he knows it to its maximum. He knows that in Hebrews 4, 16 then says this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus knows what it is like to be tempted. He can help us. That's why I said, Lord, I'm being tempted here. I want to sin against you. I don't want to yield to this. Help me. And he, he will say, in effect, I know. I know what you're going through. I've been there. I'm going to grant you mercy and grace to help you. What a high priest. What a savior. Jesus and the devil. Jesus won. And because of him, we do too. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for the living word of God, its application to our souls. And may it uh, continue to fortify us as we meditate on the truths that we just uh, looked at and addressed. We ask that you um, bring them to mind at the appropriate moments. Thank you that you're using your word to make us more like Christ. May we be uh, deeply knowledgeable of the word of God. We may use it in our life and trials and temptations to be triumphant, following in the train of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, for what you will do with your eternal word, your word which stands forever. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.